is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Cremation of Sam McGee is one of the most famous poems by Robert W. Service. It was published in 1907 in Songs of a Sourdough. A sourdough, in this sense, is a resident of the Yukon. It's about the cremation of a prospector who freezes to death, told by the man who cremates him. Here now is the cremation of Sam McGee, told by the great Johnny Cash. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say in his homely way, I'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail, and you talk of your cold well, through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close and the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see, it wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and Cap says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chill clean through to the bone. Yet it ain't being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, You'll cremate my last remains. Well, a pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the break of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. And he crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. With a corpse half hid that I couldn't get rid, I hurried horror-driven. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and because of a promise given, it was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you to cremate my last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low, and the trail was bad. And I felt half mad, but I swore I'd not give in. And I'd often sing to that hateful thing. 
and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake LeBarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a thrice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying round, and I heaped the fuel higher. Well, the flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you never did see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about before I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peek inside. I guess he's cooked and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. And since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, this is the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. And what a piece of storytelling, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We get out of the way, we find some really great material, and we share it with you. And by the way, as Johnny Cash was telling that story, I couldn't get the thought of the Lonesome Dove out of my head and that great burial scene where, of course, Woodrow has to bury Gus. He has to take him all the way back all the way back across the country by wagon because he made a promise to his buddy. By the way, if you remember the line, he says, I'll, I guess this will teach me to be more careful about what I promise in the future. But a promise then was a promise, and hopefully you know people in your life now today where a promise is a promise. The cremation of Sam McGee, what storytelling, and that's the great Johnny Cash. If you've got an old story like this from American literature, from the American canon, Send us your suggestions. We'll put them up on the air and send them right back at you. American literature at its finest. American performance art at its finest. And American storytelling at its finest here on Our American Stories.
we continue here with our American stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, as you well know. And often it's not the rich and the famous or the people who've innovated or done extraordinary things and everybody knows about. It's the, it's the ordinary folks in this country doing extraordinary things. And that brings us to the story of Wendy Caldwell. She is the oldest cadet to graduate from Houston's Police Academy. Faith brings us the story. Wendy Caldwell is a 54-year-old mounted patrol officer. This is actually her second time working for the Houston Police Department. She first went to the academy in 1993 and graduated that same year. She was then assigned to a patrol station. After having three years of service, then I applied and went to the mounted patrol unit um, where I stayed until 1998. And... uh, During that time, I had gotten married, and uh, we had our first child. It just really felt like it was a better calling to stay at home and raise the kids. So that's what I did. I chose to resign my position at the police department and raise the kids, and that's what I did for the next 18 years. What was it like going from being a police officer to a stay-at-home mom? I got to experience all kinds of things, you know. You know, everything that you, you hope you get to see when your kids are growing up, they're, when they say their first word or when they, when they take their first steps. And, uh, uh, you know, I got to be that, that mom that drove the kids to dance and baseball practice. And I was privileged to homeschool my kids for a good portion of their uh, academic years. And so it was, it was very fulfilling. It was really nice. It, it, it was... Um, much different than being, you know, going, going to be a full-time mom where, I mean, there is no manual to being a mother. You just are, and you figure it out along the way, and if you're lucky, you have family and friends that can help you along the way, but for the most part, it's, it's kind of a steep learning curve, you know, and you, um, when the kids are little, my kids were 15 months apart, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know, and it's not like going to a nine to five job every day. Um, there's no sick days. There's no time off. There's no vacation days. There, there isn't any of that stuff. You, you are on call 24 seven, you know, 365 days a year. But on the flip side of that, the reward is, it's just tremendous. It's, it's incredible to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded it for the world, but I did go through a small identity, you know, shift there. And I realized, uh, sitting on the riding lawnmower one summer, um, one summer day driving around, I said, you know, life is good. I, I get to, I get to do this and I get to raise my kids and I, and, um, life is good. So a great moment, you know, to realize that I was happy and satisfied and that, uh, you know, it's a big change. It's, it's scary. I, I left something that I loved I had a horse that I loved um, and into something that I you know, had no idea how it was going to turn out or, or what was going to happen. And it was, you know, those are scary moments. Those can be a little frightening. How did Wendy end up back with the Houston Police Department after staying home with the kids? After, after being married, uh, we were married almost 20 years. Uh, no, we were married 20 years at that point because we were married a couple years before we started having children. 
and um, we went through a really rough time and ended up getting a divorce. Um, and that was that was really tough. Um, so I had to, you know, think about. Well, gosh, you know, what am I going to do? I, I I've got to go back to work. Um, what am I going to do? I haven't done anything for the last 18 years. I have some college. I don't have a college degree. Um, and my my resume basically says stay-at-home mom. And who's going to hire me? I'm 50, almost, I was 52 years of age at the time. And, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Coincidentally, I was playing softball, a co-ed softball with uh, a group of friends and uh, one of them just happened to be a sergeant in the recruiting division for HPD and I had v done some visiting with a, an old friend of mine from the Harris County Sheriff's Department and she she suggested that I attempt to uh, challenge the TCOL exam which is the state licensing exam which means I would study and then challenge the apply to challenge the exam and then once I did that I could I could be certified again and then I would have to have an agency pick up my commission. So I was chatting with my recruiting sergeant friend and uh, asked him how difficult he thought it would be to do that. And he says, well, why? Are you thinking about coming back? And I said, well, I don't think uh, I'm eligible to come back to HPD. And he goes, well, hold on a second. Let me, let me double check that. So he checked with his lieutenant and Apparently, I was eligible. There was a, a gentleman, coincidentally, that was a brother to uh, a gentleman that I had graduated with the first time in the academy that came back to the department at the age of 50, and he set precedence for the police department that if you were a former HPD officer and had left, as long as you could fulfill the, the, all the requirements and do the physical, um, physical training that you were eligible to come back and so I was able to come back to HPD uh, with the stipulation that I had to complete the entire six and a half month academy again. So that process began and um, came back in August 29th of um, 2016 and graduated the academy again in uh, March 16th of 2017. What were the two experiences of the academy like for Wendy? They were completely different for me. Uh, the first time I went through, I was 29 years of age and graduated at 30. So I was, you know, back then I, I was into, I, I kept myself in pretty good shape. I, I still do, but you know, there's a, there's a big difference between 30 and 50, and <laughs> most people figure that out as they age. But um, the this time around, it was much more it was much more difficult. They had ramped up the physical, uh, the the PT portion of it, the physical training, so it was a lot harder than it was last time. Uh, we did a lot more running. We did a lot more hills. We did, uh, you know, it was like a, a basic training, uh, army basic training. You know, we did, we did log carries and, and all kinds of stuff. You know, we did fireman carries. We did, we did, you know, the whole gamut of physical training that you would expect to see 
in any boot camp or um, police academy training. And so my body did not hold up as well this time. I had a lot of, uh, I had some tendonitis going on. I had some, you know, but I, but I struggled through it and I always maintained um, where I needed to be and, um, and still, still graduated you know, 17 out of out of 67 in my class. That and that included all my scores, my academic, my driving, my shooting, and my physical training, as well. So, I thought I didn't think that was too bad for graduating 53 <laughs> and number 17 in my class. What was it like being so much older than everyone else? We we had a conversation at one point when we were in uh, <clears throat> in the gym, and some of the some of the younger ones were talking about some stuff that they were doing and 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 I, I looked at them and I said, wait a minute, what year were you born? <laughs> we were chuckling about it and uh, most of them were born in like 93, 94 and I said, oh my gosh, I was already a police officer. <laughs> my nickname in the academy, they used to call me mom. So that was a nice, I mean, it, it was very heartwarming, and they all, they were all really, at first I think they were a little concerned that I could even make it, um, but then about halfway through the academy, or, or probably a little sooner than that, they were, they were all rooting for me, and they, they were there in support, and you know, um, and I was kind of there, they, it was nice, they, they, they treated me like a mom, you know, it was nice. And when we come back more with Wendy Caldwell's story, and my goodness, she was scared to become a mom, and then she was scared to become a cop again. And that happens in our lives, folks, and that's why we tell you stories like this and from our subjects' mouths themselves. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story here on Our American Stories. And if you have a story like this, and particularly these life-changing stories, the kids are out of the nest, you're sick of one career, you go to another, a divorce, a death, uh, something that really fundamentally shifts your life view, and you've got to react and change. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. When we come back, more of Wendy Caldwell's story after these commercial messages. we continue with the story of Wendy Caldwell. She had not worked for almost 20 years after staying at home with her kids. After she got a divorce, Wendy decided to go back to work for the Houston PD. That would make her the oldest cadet to graduate from that academy. We return to Wendy talking about how the other recruits in the academy treated her. They used to razz me all the time and there was one guy in particular and he used to he used to kid me all the time and he'd say, you know, when you graduate, we're gonna we're gonna get you a life alert. And I said, Oh, thanks a lot, I appreciate you. <laughs> and uh, he jokingly said one time, uh, he goes, Well, maybe if we don't get you a life alert, we'll have to get you a walker when you graduate. And uh, coincidentally, I did I did graduate and cross the stage on a walker because during the last phase of training, um, 
my femur was broken. And uh, so I had to finish the academy on a walker. <laughs> Wendy actually broke her femur during the final academy exercise. How did this happen? It happened during an exercise called Red Man, which is the culmination of your physical training for the entire academy. And um, they basically what our Red Man does is it prepares you as a new police officer to understand what it feels like to be in, a, in the fight of your life. Um, because a lot of times you'll have recruits that come in that, that may have never ever been in a fight in their life. Um, you know, a scuffle, or, and most of them have never been punched in the face. So this is a little, just a little taste of that to help you understand what it's like when you're chasing a suspect and you catch them and they don't want to be arrested and you guys are fighting. Um, and that's, it's, 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 um, it's intense, it's exhausting, um, and then you're fighting under the um, uh, exhaustion and, uh, you know, you're, what it's like to fight with that diminished oxygen and mental capacity, what your thinking is going to be like during that time. Um, so it, it gives you a lot of different um, things to think about. Um, but it's used as a training tool at the very end of the academy. So, and unfortunately, during my session, um, the my red man gave me a, 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 a femur strike with the knee and uh, and broke my leg. Fortunately for me, I had completed um, all of the TCOL requirements necessary for the academy, with the exception of taking my exam. So at that point, it was all I had to do was take the exam um, um, to finish the academy um, and then graduate, which was in two weeks. So they were talking about recycling me, and you know there was it, it was a little scary for me at the time because I the first thought that went through my mind was I went all this way and I'm not going to get to graduate. I'm I'm gonna to have to do this whole thing again. And I, I knew in my mind that I physically didn't think I had another six and a half months in me to do it. So it was, it was tough. I mean, it was emotionally, it really, it really messed with me a little bit because I thought I'm not gonna, this can't be happening. So <clears throat> luckily for me, um, my captain at the time over the academy, she was, they talked about it and they were like, oh no, she's done everything. All she has to do is take the exam. Um, my academic scores were, there wasn't an issue with that. So I took my, my state licensing exam and passed that with flying colors. And they allowed me, graciously allowed me to graduate with my class. So how did being an officer in her 20s differ to being a police officer in her 50s? I think your perspective changes dramatically once you have kids. And you realize that you're not this invincible, you're not this invincible person anymore. 
Um, you also you have these little human beings to take care of. Um, so it changes your perspective on things a lot. You're a lot more cautious about things. You're, you know, and I also realize too that that my age plays a little bit more into that factor as well. I, I, I'm not as fast as I used to be. My reflexes are probably not as quick. I'm probably a little smarter though, because <laughs> I can see it coming quicker. But uh, yeah, there's just a, there's a whole lot of, you, it's just everything. Your perspective is the biggest change in the whole thing. You know, back when I was 30, I was invincible. You know, you get up, you're every day, you're excited to go to work, you're running and gunning and and loving loving the, the chase and the thrill of the chase and now it's like what well, it's fun but I'm not gonna get all excited about it like I used to. <laughs> I need to be a little more cautious. <laughs> How did her kids respond to her going back to the police force? My kids were awesome. They were so supportive of me and um, they really were my biggest fans. They really, really were my, uh, on the really, really hard days, you know, I just remember what they, that they were there and that I was doing this for them, you know, a lot of it was for them. So uh, when we were, a very poignant moment for me was when we were putting on our uniforms for graduation. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still on a walker and, you know, getting my uniform on and I uh, zip up that uniform shirt and um, I actually started crying because it was, it was a very emotional moment for me to realize that I had earned that, that shirt and badge and the privilege to, to wear that uniform one more time. And my kids were, they were amazing at my graduation. They were so, they were so excited. I think they were more excited than I was. <laughs> what are Wendy's future plans? I am actually 55 now. I graduated the academy at 53, so I'm 55 now. I'll be 56 coming up here shortly. Um, I am back at the mounted patrol unit, so I get to I'll probably, I'll probably stay here and end my career over here. It'll be a long one, but I'm not quite sure how many years we'll, we can do at this point, but as long as I can, I'm gonna stay here. You're never too old to do what you really wanna do. And sometimes when it's really, really hard, that's when you, that's when you get the best reward. You know, that's, this was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done but it's also been the most rewarding. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And thank you to Wendy Caldwell, and great job as always, Faith, on this story. I'm not sure how many years I have, but I'm going to stay as long as I can. She was doing it for her kids, and yet her kids, well, they were cheerleading on mom. And it's a beautiful thing when people do these kind of things. We also got to hear... Well, what cops train for, right? And the circumstances they have to get into in their lives. They actually get trained to get punched in the face, to run down perps who might be on drugs or might be doing bad things to the community. And so anytime we get a chance, 
when we can walk in the shoes of others, including those in blue or those fighting overseas to defend us, understand their walk. It's harder than the rest of us. They're volunteering to fight against some really dark forces in the world, and that can impact their lives. We're looking for your stories, too, always. These kinds of stories, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, your stories are our favorites here. This is Our American Stories, a story of Wendy Caldwell, a story of love, a story of compassion, and in the end, what nerve and guts to go back into the academy in your 50s. What a choice, a beautiful choice. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and we love telling stories from the great American literature canon and today we're bringing you another you've probably read Walt Whitman or at least you were supposed to in your high school English class but even if you've heard of Leaves of Grass you've probably never heard this tale that Hillsdale College professor Kelly Franklin brings us it was winter in 1862 and Americans were fighting our nation's civil war. In mid-December, the Union suffered a disaster at the Battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The entrenched Confederates cut down wave after wave of Union soldiers, leaving the Northern Army with 13,000 casualties, more than double those of the Southern defenders. From the Union standpoint, things looked pretty bleak for the formerly United States of America. News of the casualties hit the papers right away, and on December 16th, the American writer Walt Whitman learned that his brother George had been wounded at Fredericksburg. With no other information, Whitman set out to find his brother. He searched the hospitals in D.C. with no luck until a friend lent him money and got him a pass to the front, where George, if he were still alive, might be found. Then, in Falmouth, Virginia, Whitman located his brother safe and sound with only a minor wound to his face. But Whitman also saw something else, something he never forgot. Outside a field hospital, Whitman saw a heap of amputated limbs, enough to fill a one-horse cart, horrified, he wrote in his diary. At the foot of a tree, immediately in front, a heap of feet, legs, arms, and human fragments cut bloody, black and blue, swelled and sickening. By 1862, Walt Whitman had already achieved some fame and some notoriety as a poet that celebrated the human body. I am the poet of the body. He had written in his 1855 book, Leaves of Grass. And I am the poet of the soul. The man's body is sacred and the woman's body is sacred. But in that grisly moment outside the field hospital, Whitman got his first real glimpse of the human cost of the Civil War. It wasn't long before he knew what he wanted to do about it. In January of 1863, Whitman returned to Washington, D.C., where he began perhaps the greatest undertaking of his life. While the war raged on, Whitman threw himself into the task of visiting the sick and wounded men, both Northerners and Southerners, who languished in the Civil War hospitals. 
The union already had many doctors and nurses, but Whitman intuitively knew that people need more than medical treatment to get well. Companionship, comfort, morale boosting, even a kind word. And as a volunteer, Whitman could provide that to the soldiers. He worked a part-time job in the mornings and spent the afternoons and evenings in the hospitals. He talked with the men, sat with them. He brought a satchel full of little gifts, candy, clothes, fruit, money, tobacco, stamps, and paper for writing letters. When the weather was hot, he brought them ice cream. While in the hospitals, Whitman wrote down the names and descriptions of the soldiers in his notebooks, along with anything special they asked for. Henry Benton, Company E, 7th Ohio Volunteer, Ward K, Bed 44. Wants a little jelly and an orange. Wounded last Sunday at Chancellorsville in leg. I saw the bullet and a piece of the bone. Stout hardy Ohio boy. Henry Eberly, Bed 8, Ward K, Company H, 28th Pennsylvania Volunteers. Wants a German prayer book. Wounded in the left shoulder pretty bad. Not all of his visits were cheerful. Of a man named Hiram Johnson from the 157th New York Volunteers, Whitman wrote in his notebook, This is the bed of death. Although he supported the Union, Whitman left the politics of the war outside the hospital doors and treated the wounded equally. In his memoir of the Civil War, Whitman later described taking care of a 19-year-old boy from Baltimore whose right leg had been amputated. He writes, As I was lingering, soothing him in his pain, he says to me suddenly, I hardly think you know who I am. I don't wish to impose upon you. I am a rebel soldier. I said I did not know that, but it made no difference. Visiting him daily for about two weeks after that while he lived, death had marked him and he was quite alone. Many of these Civil War soldiers died far from family and home. Some of them even died unknown and unidentified. It was the era before dog tags and DNA testing. In March of 1864, Whitman described one of these cases in a letter to his mother. Whitman wrote of the arrival of a train carrying sick and wounded soldiers. Mother, it was a dreadful night, pretty dark, the wind gusty, and the rain fell in torrents. One poor boy, he seemed to me quite young, he was quite small. He groaned some as the stretcher bearers were carrying him along, and again as they carried him through the hospital gate. They set down the stretcher and examined him, and the poor boy was dead. The doctor came immediately, but it was all of no use. The worst of it is, too, that he is entirely unknown. There was nothing on his clothes or anyone with him to identify him, and he is altogether unknown. Mother, it is enough to rack one's heart such things. Very likely his folks will never know in the world what has become of him. And many men died unknown in the war. Many were hastily buried or lost altogether in the chaos and aftermath of battle. This meant that families and friends were denied many of the rituals of grief. But Walt Whitman was also at the height of his career as a poet, and during the war he would write poems of grief and mourning that would help him and the nation express those terrible losses. Walt Whitman had worked with words and language for most of his life. Born on Long Island, he supported himself from a very young age, working at a printing shop, in a law office, and as a teacher. 
but he soon found his way to authorship, writing journalism, conventional poems, and fiction. Then, in 1855, Whitman published his experimental book, Leaves of Grass, which violated all the current norms of poetry and celebrated the full range of human life, from democracy to sexuality, writing in powerful free verse about the body, the soul, nature, and city life, and the labors of working class men and women. But now, Whitman had a war to write about, and at the end of it, he published a book of war poems called Drum Taps. In one of his best poems, Vigil Strange, I Kept on the Field One Night, Whitman recreates an imaginary moment of grief and burial for the fallen dead. The poetic speaker describes seeing a young soldier struck down in the heat of battle. Unable to stop, for the conflict rages on around them, the narrator charges ahead, but returns that night to keep vigil for a boy he calls both son and comrade. Long there and then in vigil I stood, dimly around me the battlefield spreading, vigil wondrous and vigil sweet there in the fragrant silent night. The speaker stays with the body all night. Till at latest lingering of the night, indeed just as the dawn appeared, my comrade I wrapped in his blanket enveloped well his form folded the blanket well, tucking it carefully overhead and carefully under feet. And there and then, and bathed by the rising sun, my son in his grave, in his rude dug grave, I deposited. Ending my vigil strange with that, vigil of night and battlefield dim, vigil for boy of responding kisses, never again on earth responding. Vigil for comrades swiftly slain, vigil I never forget how as day brightened, I rose from the chill ground and folded my soldier well in his blanket, and buried him where he fell. Like in most of his poems, the soldier remains nameless, which means that he could be anyone, known or unknown, Yankee or rebel, any of the more than 600,000 men who perished in the war. Whitman continued to visit the hospitals on and off throughout the war. He once estimated that he had visited somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000 soldiers. He also wrote that, after his time in the hospitals, the pages of his notebooks were actually stained with soldiers' blood. Walt Whitman would have a long and fruitful life and career as a writer, right up to his death in 1892. But he always thought about his hospital years as something central to his life. Those three years I consider the greatest privilege and satisfaction, and of course, the most profound lesson of my life. Those years of hospital visits represent a tremendous act of service to his fellow Americans during a time of war. While we tend to remember him as one of America's great poets, Walt Whitman's sacrificial charity during the Civil War may be his greatest legacy. But we can also be thankful he was a writer, Although he once claimed that the real war will never get in the books, Walt Whitman's diaries, letters, poems, and memoirs constitute a powerful eyewitness account, a moving record of one man's mind and heart during this bloody chapter in the story of American history. And great job on that, Robbie, and thank you to Hillsdale professor Kelly Franklin telling us about a great man and a part of his life so few people know and how moving when that young man a rebel soldier said to him i am a rebel soldier and he said i didn't know that but it made no difference
and we should all be learning from that day-to-day in life, that Whitman was there to just attend to the needs of the fallen. And Hillsdale College, by the way, this is, this is what you learn there, and this is why we work so carefully and closely with them and cultivate this kind of material for you and for your families. And if you want to learn more about Hillsdale, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu for their free and terrific online courses. Kelly Franklin's story, Walt Whitman's story, the story of the American Civil War in a way you hadn't heard it before. And by the way, in a nation of 31,600,000 fell, 31,600,000 dead. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. An American candy store in 1900 looked very different than it does today. Candy was a special treat sold almost exclusively in candy stores. Customers didn't touch the merchandise. Store clerks did. It wasn't displayed on open racks, but glass jars behind the counter. Clerks put the candy into bags, one piece at a time. The varieties of candy included butterscotch, toffee, caramel, molasses, taffy, and hard candy made from boiled sugar. Milton Hershey knew the one thing that was missing. Chocolate. Chocolate was sold in Europe, and only a very few affluent Americans had ever tried it. Here's Greg Hengler with the sweet story of Milton Hershey. It's January, 1862. The skinny-as-a-rake four-year-old Milton Snavely Hershey peers out of the window of a shanty at a fresh coat of white powder, wearing every piece of warm clothing he owns. He marvels at how pretty the usually muddy oil town of Titusville, Pennsylvania looks, draped in snow. Milton's father, Henry, has moved his small family in September, 1860, from Derry Church, Pennsylvania, 250 miles northwest to a hut to make his fortune in America's first oil boom. Milton's mother, Fanny, refers to it as another one of his latest harebrained schemes. In the course of their marriage, Fanny will count 17 business attempts and 17 failures. Here's Hershey biographer, Michael D'Antonio. She followed Henry through a few of his adventures and a few of his failures, and then started to look around herself and say, I'm raising two children. I don't have a reliable husband. I'm not sure where I'm going to live or whether there's going to be food tomorrow. This has to change. Even though Milton is only a shy four-year-old, he is aware of the differences between his parents. His mother, Fanny, is a strict and intensely focused Mennonite from a well-to-do family who made their fortune selling produce and real estate. She works hard, cooking over a tiny gas flame and saving her pennies in a pocket under her apron. 
She tries to keep the shanty clean and stuffs old rags into cracks in the wall to keep out the cold. His charming father, on the other hand, is a dreamer. He doesn't seem to know where the next penny is coming from, but he always has a new get-rich-quick scheme that will get his family out of dire straits. He's always laughing, telling stories, and reading newspapers and books that give him his next big idea on how to make his first million. Fanny hates her husband reading books. She likes to see men working hard, plowing and planting, weeding, harvesting, all the activities her brothers and father carry out on their well-run Mennonite farm back in Dairy Church. After a year and a half in Titusville, the Hershey's are destitute and bordering on starvation. Fanny's brothers arrive in Titusville and take her and Milton back to the Mennonite community in southeast Pennsylvania. Milton's ancestors, who settled in Derry Church, are descendants of Swiss families who came to America seeking religious freedom in the 1700s. The Mennonites are Christians with a rock-ribbed devotion to God and his injunction to gain a living by unending sweat of the brow. Here's the director of the Hershey Community Archives, Pamela Cassidy. In the Mennonite faith, wealth is a sign of God's grace and that you work hard because that's a way of showing devotion to God. And if you're financially successful, that's simply a gift from God. The Snavelys and the Hersheys trace their roots back to these early settlers. And while the Snavelys are still devout Mennonites, Milton's father, Henry, has strayed from the strict rules of the group. Henry was a dreamer. Though he never had much formal education, he, had, he was well-read, just had a great love of books, and always was looking at the new. Um, he had dozens of ideas, many of which came to pass, but Henry just didn't have the perseverance or the money or the connections to make them happen. In 1866, Henry will again move his family 45 miles southeast from their Mennonite community. Fanny hates it. Just one year later, with Henry away roaming, Milton's four-year-old sister Serena will die of scarlet fever. The more wrapped up Henry becomes in his latest venture, the longer he is gone leaving his half-starved family to take care of the farm. Fanny's content to be thought a widow with an orphan son. Milton passes his school days at a series of one-room schools. His mother approves of his vehement distaste for school and books, which she blames for ruining her husband. In 1870, Milton leaves school happily at 12 with only a fourth-grade education. So crippled in literacy, he will leave almost no written records. Having been freed from the burden of schooling, it's now time to get Milton a real job as a printer's apprentice. Milton hates it. Here's senior director at the Hershey Museum, Amy Bischoff. The story was that he did not get along very well with the man that he was apprenticed to, so he threw a straw hat into one of the printing presses to break it so that he could get fired. Milton's mother, Fanny, and his aunt, Maddie, know Milton is a smart boy. He just isn't made to be a scholar. 
They set out and find Milton a job as a candy maker's apprentice for four years at Royer's Ice Cream Parlor and Garden in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 30 miles southeast of Derry Church. 14-year-old Milton arrives with a small suitcase containing two spare changes of clothes, two towels, his Bible, and little else. He's expected to work 12 hours a day and more on Friday and Saturday nights. Milton is a natural. He's a hard worker just like his mother, but unlike his mother, his Aunt Maddie has a shrewd business sense. She immediately recognizes Milton's talent and begins planting the idea of him starting his own small business when his four-year apprenticeship is over. And we'll continue with this remarkable story, the story of Milton Hershey, after these commercial messages. This is Our American Story. And we continue with the story of Milton Hershey. And my goodness, sent off to be a candy maker apprentice at the age of 14. And it just goes to that point that we make often on the show. The college isn't for everyone. And learning a trade and a skill is. And my goodness, he became really good at what he did, working and toiling away in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Let's return to the story of Milton Hershey. In early 1876... As America celebrates its 100th birthday, 18-year-old Milton receives a $150 loan from his no-nonsense Aunt Maddie and heads east to start his own candy business in an 8-by-10-foot space in Philadelphia, the second-largest city in the United States. He's quickly joined by his mother and his old family friend, Lebby Leadkicker. Sales are good at first. Milton makes great candy, but he's not a great businessman. After five years of backbreaking work and bailout after bailout from the Snavelys, Milton's father shows up unexpectedly. Henry's youthful optimism has something appealing about it, but it also finds the balance of Milton's bank account plummeting even farther. This time, the Snavely relatives are unwilling to bail him out. That it was not unusual for him to go into the work area and spend 15, 16 hours, go home, sleep for four or five hours, and then come back and start again a new day. And I think it was because it was something new and that was something that Milton Hershey really thrived on. He knew, unlike his father, that if he was going to succeed, he had to put every bit of energy that he had into the business. Milton's father moves on to his next business adventure, mining for silver in the Rockies, and invites his 24-year-old son to join him. With a failed candy business and a longing for his father's company and approval, Milton follows Henry West to Denver, Colorado, and finds steady work in a candy shop. On his first day at his new job, Milton discovers something odd. The candy shop owner does not add paraffin to his caramels. Paraffin wax, made from petroleum, is normally used to help set the caramel candies and make them chewy. The owner reveals that he uses fresh milk instead of paraffin. Not only does it have a better taste and texture, but it lasts months without spoiling, as opposed to the two to three day shelf life when paraffin is used. 
Here's the executive director of the Hershey Museum and Gardens, David Park Jr. This had pretty tremendous impact on on Milton Hershey because in those days, of course, they were just you know shipping the the candies locally, and and there wasn't need to to preserve them for any longer periods of time. After a year in Denver, Henry boards a train with Milton to greener grass in Chicago, and then New Orleans. Both dead ends. With the backing of his mother and Aunt Maddie again, he breaks from his father and starts a candy business in New York City at 742 6th Avenue near 42nd Street in 1883. In a few months, both his mother and Aunt Maddie join him in the venture, cooking, pulling, cutting, wrapping, and selling caramels, taffy, candied fruit, nuts, and fruitcake. Unfortunately, Milton has to close the store in 1886, The year before, Henry arrived and wanted his son to make cough drops. But Hershey Cough Drops, the potential shining star of Milton's confectionery lineup, were a flop. They were good enough lozenges, but New Yorkers already had a favorite brand that was cheaper to buy. Smith Brothers Cough Drops. Milton makes the long, painful train ride back to Lancaster to find the Snavelys have given up on him financially and won't even take him in. Here's the director of the Hershey Community Archives, Pam Whitenick. Um, His mother's family, who had been helping him with financial loans all these years, had reached the conclusion that he was just like his father, just chasing one pipe dream after another. Milton may be a dreamer, but he's also incredibly determined. He pays a visit to his old friend, Lebby Leadkicker, and explains his situation. Lebby sets up a cot, buys him dinner, and the next day, Lebby pays for all the candy equipment shipped from New York and covers the next three months of rent so he can set up his candy operation in Lancaster. Here again is Pamela Cassidy. Milton Hershey never, ever forgot that kind of kindness. And when he comes to, um, up to Hershey to build his new factory, Lebkecker is with him. And he has a place of importance within Mr. Hershey's inner circle. Milton decides that his candy business will not be about making a whole lot of things good, but making one thing exceptional. Soon, his mother and Aunt Maddie join the operation again. As the business grows, he needs more equipment. But after talking to three different loan officers at three different banks, Milton concludes that at 29, with no assets and two failed businesses behind him, he's not a good loan risk. Finally, the Lancaster National Bank agrees to give him the money with Aunt Maddie putting up her house to underwrite the loan. Milton, his mother, and Aunt Maddie work around the clock making caramels in the new facility. But as the 90-day loan period draws to a close, Milton realizes that his best efforts have not been good enough. With the loss of his aunt's house staring him in the face, Milton sets out to sell caramels from his pushcart when a man with a tweed suit and an English accent purchases three pennies worth of caramels. As it happens, this man, Andrew Deces, is a confectionery importer from London. He loves the candy, but is reluctant to make a deal because of their potential for spoiling. Milton guarantees that his caramels will stay fresh for months. DC's takes a big shipment on consignment. 
So he goes to the bank and he says, I can't pay this and I need even more money because I need to buy more ingredients. And the man who he was talking to was the cashier of this bank. His name was Brenneman. Um, he takes Brenneman back to his work area and it wasn't very impressive, but Brenneman was very, very impressed with Milton Hershey. I really believe in this man, so I'm gonna put my own name to this loan. He does that, and about five days before the loan, that second loan comes due, Milton Hershey receives payment from DCs, is able to pay off a loan, and from that point on, it's been a matter of about four years before he's one of Lancaster's most successful citizens. By 1893, Milton Hershey has two factories and is employing 1,500 people. Give them quality, Hershey says, that's the best advertising in the world. On May 1st, 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition opens in Chicago, commemorating the 400-year anniversary of Christopher Columbus sailing from Europe to the New World. The United States has several interesting new foods on display, shredded wheat, Coca-Cola, Pillsbury flour, Lipton tea, juicy fruit chewing gum, and a convenient new way to eat a meal. It's called the hamburger. But what Milton Hershey sees will not only transform his life, but America itself. While he was there, he saw a demonstration of chocolate-making machinery um, that was on display from Germany. Was fascinated by that. Machinery just fascinated Milton Hershey as well as the new and the untried, and he saw chocolate as that. Milton keeps returning to the chocolate exhibit several times a day and gets to know the creators of the chocolate factory. German chocolate is creamy, unlike the expensive, gritty American chocolate. On one visit, Milton turns to his cousin Frank and says, You mark my words, Frank. The caramel business is a fad. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. Here's former student turned president of the Hershey Industrial School, John Mack Eichley. Mr. Hershey was his own man and decided to do what he wanted to do, regardless of what his advisors might tell him. The more Hershey studies the numbers, the better he feels about his instincts. Just 10 years before the exposition, the U.S. imported 9 million pounds of cocoa beans, and now they are importing 24 million pounds. And what a story you're hearing, and my goodness, the amount of failure that Milton Hershey encountered, and yet he kept coming back, and finally, through determination, and thank goodness for family, the mother and Aunt Maddie, hanging in there with Milton, too. But what a visionary. Caramel is a fad. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. And he had the intuition to know that. There was no data analytics back then. And he committed everything to that vision. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. And my goodness, he was his own man. We will hear more about this remarkable man. And we tell so many of these stories that they're not teaching in schools anymore. From the Steinway family to Henry Ford, right up to Steve Jobs. These individuals making a difference in this country and changing the country for the better. Milton Hershey's story continues here on Our American Stories.
Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Milton Hershey. Let's return to Greg Hengler. The more Hershey studies the numbers, the better he feels about his instincts. Just 10 years before the exposition, the U.S. imported 9 million pounds of cocoa beans, and now they are importing 24 million pounds. Here again is Michael D'Antonio and the former CEO of Hershey Foods, Kenneth Wolf. At the end of the fair, the operators of this chocolate factory in miniature could either ship the equipment back to Germany or sell it. Milton bought the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. In the early 1900s, chocolate was really a luxury item that was only affordable by the economic top of the, of the ladder in our country. And I think one of the keys to Milton Hershey's success was that in the back of his mind, he saw making good chocolate at an affordable price for the mass consumer, and he wanted his product distributed everywhere. I think he was the first of, uh, of his kind, uh, certainly in the confectionery industry. And in a sense, in a small sense, I think he was to uh, chocolate what Henry Ford was to automobiles. Then at 40 years of age, Hershey meets the beautiful, vivacious, and witty 24-year-old Irish Catholic, Catherine Sweeney, or as he calls her, Kitty. After a year of courtship, they're married in 1898 in St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue in New York. No one is there to witness the event. Just six months after their wedding, it is discovered that Kitty has an incurable disease affecting her nerves. As Milton searches the world for a cure, he also searches for a perfect chocolate recipe. Milton wants to make sweet milk chocolate like the Nestle Swiss Chocolate Company. One big problem, Nestle won't share their secret. What made Milton Hershey so successful was his creativeness, his ability to envision what could be. Um, he got that from his father. Henry was not a successful person, and when his father would fail, he would just say, well, that happened, let's move on, you know, it's not going to stop me. Milton Hershey got that from his father. Milton returns to his family in Derry Church, where he sets up a lab to work out a new chocolate formula. He uses it as a chocolate coating for caramels. He creates tins of Hershey's cocoa powder and 114 other chocolate treats. Business booms, and as a result, he needs bigger production space. But Hershey runs headlong into corrupt local politicians, asking for contributions or risk paying high taxes on any land he purchases. Here again is David Park. Yeah, Milton Hershey sold his Lancaster Caramel Company for a million dollars in 1900 to his biggest competitor, and uh, many people think that that's, that's quite a risk that he was taking. He decided just to go entirely into chocolate. Milton takes another big risk. 
and builds his modern chocolate factory back in the pristine rolling hills of his Mennonite hometown in Derry Church, Pennsylvania. There are plenty of cows in the area to supply necessary milk, although he does replace the herd of Jersey cows with Holstein's after painstaking experiments reveal Holstein's milk make a better tasting chocolate bar. Milton Hershey's real strength was in experimentation, the unknown. And he approached that not on a scientific basis, but on a hands-on basis by just trying things and seeing what happened. He didn't want to know whether it was possible. He wanted you to try it. And if you failed, well, that was fine. The trying was what was really important. He also envisions a town for all of his workers. He plans everything from the start so that it will be perfect. Before the factory makes one chocolate bar, Hershey lays out the streets. The first two are main streets, Cocoa and Chocolate Avenues, and he also lays out the parks of his town. He hires architects to design high-quality, one-of-a-kind homes and buildings with electricity, central heating, and indoor plumbing. Companies are created to build a bank, a zoo, and schools. Swimming pools, hotels, a sports arena, golf courses, theaters, department stores, libraries, churches, railway sidings, water mains, a post office, telephone, and sewage systems. Hershey even sets up a widespread system of trolley lines that will spoke out through the countryside to help workers get around town and travel to and from the factory. Mr. Hershey had a, a very strong vision of what he wanted, not only for his chocolate company, but for his workers and the kind of environment that he wanted to provide. And that was a very far-reaching view that he had, certainly um, uncommon in his day and age. Then he rebuilds the massive factory. Its giant smokestacks have his name in big letters. Hershey produces his chocolate on a moving assembly line one decade before Henry Ford. The plant soon sends the smell of chocolate floating through the valley. Each bar is wrapped in a dark maroon paper and the large silver letters read Hershey's. Hershey envisions a delicious milk chocolate candy bar all Americans can afford. They will be sold for five cents at every cinema, drugstore counter, and bowling alley in the country. For 60 years, until 1969, Hershey's chocolate bars will cost just five cents. Here again is Michael D'Antonio. You know, the original Hershey bar is pretty much what we find today in retail settings from gas stations to convenience stores to supermarkets. It's that familiar rectangle with the brown paper and the silvery white letters on it. It was a big success as soon as it was issued. By 1905, the factory is making 100,000 pounds of chocolate a day, and the following year, net sales reach $1 million. The house Milton builds is handsome and comfortable but would easily fit into the reception foyer of some of the great homes of Newport and Long Island. It's called High Point, but its main feature is where he builds it. He chooses not only to stay within view and walking distance of the business that is his life, but of the people that are its heart and soul. 
he was one of the first to understand that a big manufacturing facility could be the beating heart of the economy of a local community. And once that community started to grow, people were drawn to it. Always working towards getting his parents back together, and despite the fact that they live on opposite ends of his house, Hershey is grateful that they are at least living under the same roof again. Fanny, with her plain clothing and Mennonite bonnet, does the housework and cooking, while Henry enjoys himself. Asked what he is doing while shopping, he chirps happily, Spending Milt's money. A contest is held with a $100 prize to name the town. And so, in 1906, Hershey becomes the official name in the U.S. Postal Records. And you've been hearing this story, the remarkable story of Milton Hershey. And my goodness, his vision for his company and his workers, a man ahead of his time, and that he was in the business of bringing chocolate to the masses at affordable prices, a product that had only been available to the rich before, made him the Henry Ford of sweets, no doubt. In fact, he beat Ford to the moving assembly line. And Henry Ford, of course, did the same thing. Cars were only available to the rich until Ford, through his ingenious use of that moving assembly line, drove the prices down while raising the prices of the average worker's wage. And when we come back, the rest of the story, the rest of Milton Hershey's story, here on Our American Stories. And by the way, if you have a figure in history you want us to tell a story about, send it to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. return to the story of Milton Hershey and what a story it is. And let's return to Greg Hengler for the rest of this story. Once Milton and his increasingly unwell kitty come to terms that they will never be able to have children of their own, they begin what will become the capstone of their lives. They open an orphanage and the Hershey Industrial School for Boys is founded. The trust deed states that they will be fed wholesome food, clothed, partake in daily chores, and emphasizes learning through play and physical activity. But the greatest concern for Hershey is the boy's Christian education, which makes his choice of house parents, who will run the orphanage and school, paramount. Both are graduates of Barrysburg Lutheran Seminary. Here's Pamela Cassidy, Hershey executives Bruce McKinney, and William Dearden. I think this really ties into Milton Hershey's sorrows about his own childhood, about um, the time that his parents were separated and he feeling like an orphan. Um, He spent a lot of his childhood moving around quite a bit and he wanted to create a more stable environment for boys who were being raised similar to that he had been raised. He saw it developing while he was alive and he protected Uh, the future of it by the unique trust system that he set up. And to the extent that all of us who have come after him are able to do so, it is our clear objective 
to shepherd along to protect and enhance the legacy that he established long ago. In the schools that I went to as a boy before coming to Hershey, uh, an orphan was someone that people pointed out and said, you know, he's different. When we came to Milton Hershey School, we were all orphans. So it became a non-problem. You could forget about that and get on with your life. And this gave us a confidence and a real feeling of assurance that if we use our talent, we could make something of ourselves. And Mr. Hershey never let us forget that. Done in secret, Hershey perpetuates the school in a trust with his entire personal fortune, an astonishing $60 million in stock. Here again is John Eichley. It's the only thing that lasts forever, the school and the trust. They could sell the chocolate company, they could sell the park, or anything else in Hershey. But the school and the trust company will always be here. Hershey explains, I am 66 years old. I have no heirs. So I decided to make the orphan boys of the United States my heirs. Certainly Milton Hershey School saved me. You were in awe of Mr. Hershey. He was a godfather figure that you looked up to. I think the crowning thing was uh, when he handed my diploma in 1941 and shook my hand. Today, the private boarding school with 2,000 needy boys and girls is renamed the Milton Hershey School. And with over $12 billion in assets, it is, per student, the wealthiest school in the world. With the success of the Hershey's Bar, in the summer of 1907, Milton creates a new product that will become even more famous, a small conical-shaped drop of chocolate, hand-wrapped in foil and sold in a box. Hershey calls these chocolate drops sweethearts, though shortly after he renames them Hershey Kisses. Here's Pennsylvania reporter John Lucy. It was the perfect size, the perfect shape, the perfect wrapper. It was a hit right out of the box. In the spring of 1912, cutting short his trip abroad to Europe, probably because of Kitty's debilitating condition, Hershey cancels reservations he made on the most luxurious ship ever made. A fast, new, and unsinkable ocean liner. So, the Titanic goes down without the Hershey's. But, on March 25, 1915, Kitty's 40-year-old heart stops. An attending nurse says, Milton was like a madman. He took the death of his wife very badly. And from that point on, he really focuses his attention on his businesses and on the community. Hershey has his defeats. When Bill Wrigley's company begins putting their name on chocolate, Hershey retaliates with a Hershey's chewing gum. And since Wrigley owns the Chicago Cubs baseball team, Hershey tries to buy the Philadelphia Phillies to challenge Wrigley on both fields. The Phillies' purchase fails, and so does the gum. I never lost my temper, Hershey will say, but I did lose money on it. As the Great Depression brought American business to a whisper and breadlines multiply, Milton Hershey is determined that the troubles will not touch his paradise. Instead of firing, he will employ. Instead of retrenching, he will build. 
Mr. Hershey had a unique perspective during the time of the Depression, and in fact, uh, we are clearly the beneficiaries of a major building campaign that took place at a time when the rest of the country was having very, very severe economic and financial difficulties. Here's John Stover, whose great-grandfather worked at the Hershey plant during the Great Depression. Milton Hershey had asked the foreman, he's like, what's this steam shovel doing here? He's like, well, it takes the place of 40 men. And Milton Hershey's response was, well, get rid of the steam shovel and hire the 40 men. Hershey says, think about it. When these buildings are completed, they will create more jobs. The hotel will need cooks and waiters and maids. The school will need teachers. And the sports arena will need cleaners and groundskeepers and hot dog vendors. He was walking through the lobby one day and asked the general manager of Hotel Hershey how many room nights had been reserved the night before, and the manager reluctantly said, Mr. Hershey, 12 rooms. And he said, 12 rooms. Well, we've got uh, 150 here. Let's make certain those 12 people have a very unique experience. With his wife gone, Hershey gives his home to the country club and lives in just two rooms on the top floor. In 1938, Rice Krispies are added to the Hershey's bar, and the Crackle Chocolate Bar is added to the line of products that includes Mr. Good Bar and Hershey's Chocolate Syrup. During World War II, Hershey develops a 600-calorie bar for the American GIs. Through the course of the war, the military orders more than one billion bars from the Hershey Chocolate Corporation. The Air Force even names a B-26 bomber the city of Hershey. Here again is Michael D'Antonio. It was hard in 1940 to manufacture a chocolate bar that could go to the Arctic and go to the jungle, cross oceans, and still be edible. And it's amazing to think of how much it boosted morale for a soldier to be able to open his ration package and get a little bit of Hershey chocolate. On September 13th, 1945, Hershey celebrates his 88th birthday with 14 of his closest friends at the old Hershey homestead. They dine in the room where Milton and his father were both born. Exactly one month later, Milton Hershey comes down with pneumonia and his heart stops beating. Over 100 years later, Chocolate Town USA is still celebrating Milton Hershey's legacy. Every September 13th, the town gathers in Chocolate Town Square Park to honor their founder's birthday. Greatest man ever lived as far as I'm concerned. He's done so much for all of us. He could have just used it up for himself, but he decided to make a school and places for other people. Scarcely educated, and contemptuous of book learning, Milton Snavely Hershey founded a world-class educational system. Though he seldom wrote or deeply read, he built a fabulous business empire. Today, where 80 million kisses and four and a half million Hershey bars are made daily, the Hershey Company earns over five and a half billion dollars a year in revenue. But the human, spiritual, and emotional riches that were the main wealth of this simple man still survive, as the legacy of Milton Hershey continues to sweeten the lives of Americans and chocolate lovers all over the world. 
Honoring America, the Philadelphia Orchestra Brass. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And what a remarkable life Milton Hershey's was. And by the way, this is the kind of story that should be told in every classroom in America. Because kids love the candy. And connecting it to where it came from and how it happened connects them to free enterprise, to the story of free markets, to the story of American exceptionalism. This is one man's idea. It's his name on the bar. His name. These weren't modern branders who came up with a fake name. He just put his own name on the bar, sold it, and now it's a brand and everybody associates that name, well, of course, with kisses and bars. 80 million kisses still made to this day, every day, and 4.5 million Hershey bars made daily as well, and 5.5 billion in revenue. And yet it's the human side of this man that's so interesting, and particularly his desire to help educate orphan kids and to take care of them. And all because of his experience as a young man. And by the way, scarcely educated, contemptuous of book learning, Milton Hershey founded a world-class educational establishment and one of the most richly endowed. What a remarkable story. The story of free enterprise. The story of one man changing the world and making it a better place. And the story of this town, Hershey, Pennsylvania and where it came from. All of that here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. 